Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. The only show dedicated to exploring the commercialization of great ideas and research across deep tech and science, driven by the ambition of the people that make up Australia's unique innovation landscape. We talk to the greatest minds about what is influencing their work and their insights into the ingredients needed to bring great Australian innovation to life. Hello and welcome. I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. Welcome to the Commercial Disco. Today I'm talking to James Caruso. He's a Senior Advisor and Chairman of the Advisory Board at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in the US. He's a long-time diplomat, 25-year career at the US State Department, including stints as Deputy Chief of Mission and Charged Affairs at the US Embassy in Canberra and Charged Affairs at the US Mission to ASEAN. Welcome, James. Thank you, James. Good to be here. All right, we're going to talk a lot about uh, defense, uh, defense sector technology, dual-use technology, and this regulation called the International Traffic in Arms Regulation, ITAR. You have written recently about ITAR. ITAR effectively is a Cold War regulation that was aimed at keeping U.S. technology advantage in U.S. hands, making sure that there was a controls of where arms were sent. I think that's a, a reasonable description. Is that fair? That's fair. That was uh, promulgated in 1976. So uh, I don't know if it was the height of the Cold War, but it was still certainly going on. The fall of the Berlin Wall certainly wasn't on anyone's radar. And it was exactly that. It was uh, keeping advanced U.S. tech out of the hands of especially the Russians. Okay, here we are in 2023. We're a long way from 1976 from a geopolitical perspective. One of the things that is very interesting to me about ITAR is that it restricts the flow of technology and some cooperation and the flow of military equipment in some respects. With Australia, I think a lot of people would be surprised that it's applied to Australia. So that's a tight control back in the frosty days of the 70s. Yeah. Um, look, when Congress writes laws, they don't particularly like to do carve-outs unless they have to. And the idea, again, is this is licensing or approvals given by a section of the Department of State, our foreign ministry. So the attitude was, well, our friends and allies will get the equipment and other things they need. The exporter simply has to go through the process of getting the license. And so it was for a time of less urgency. Things moved along. As you look around the kit that the Australian military uses, there's a lot of American high-tech there. The F-35 fighter is a perfect example. But the current situation requires a much greater sense of urgency that doesn't really allow for us to work at that same pace. That's first of all. Second of all, James, what is anticipated under AUKUS, the second pillar of AUKUS, after the first pillar being the submarines, the second pillar being cooperation on all sorts of advanced tech, is if we're sharing information, you and I, I can't get a bloody license or approval every time you and I want to exchange information. But that's what ITAR would seem to require. Okay, well, look, let's get into that because our interest here at Innovation Oz is around industry development in Australia, and we can see a lot of um, potential in the AUKUS arrangements. You know, the pillar two of the AUKUS arrangements for some of those cooperation on some of the dual use tech. So tell me 
how would it work under August? I mean, those arrangements have not yet been made. You've called for a, a carve-out for Australia. How do you see the AUKUS arrangements progressing such that both Australia, well, the tripartite, you know, the partners, are able to benefit under those Pillar 2 arrangements? Well, obviously, the, the easiest thing would be a carve-out for Australia. Just say, okay, licensing for these sorts of technologies is not required in order to fill what's in the U.S. national security strategy, which says quite clearly that for us to compete with our first near-peer competitor we've had since World War II, which, of course, is the People's Republic of China, uh, we need to maintain a technological advantage. To do that, we have to work more closely with our closest allies, specifically Australia and the U.K., on developing this advanced technology, hypersonics, quantum computing, drone technology, all sorts of things. To do that requires sharing information about how our tech is being developed, sharing our secrets, basically, about the most advanced technology we have. Obviously, we're very sensitive about that. Recent history shows we haven't always done great at keeping secrets, so maybe you guys should be more worried than we are. (laughs) Um, But the bottom line is, for us to compete with China and maintain the technological advantage that we currently enjoy, is going to require all of us pulling on the oar together, which doesn't mean that some people at the State Department can sit and give approval every time some technology or information about technology is going to be shared across our borders. So I think a carve-out's what's needed, but I'm sure there are other ways of doing it as well that I'm not clever enough to know about. I think just from the tone of the article that you've written with a bunch of other recent uh, US ambassadors to Australia, it has to be said, There is an urgency to this situation. Can you just describe that urgency? I mean, we've existed up to this point. We do have uh, Apache helicopters. We do have F-35 fighters. We do have a whole bunch of US kids. What's the, the urgency now is what? Well, let's start with the People's Republic of China have undertaken one of the most massive and extensive expansions of their military Uh, we've seen in recent history. And this is being done without sharing the strategic intent of this buildup. Normally, when countries are undertaking something like this, they will want to talk to their, at least their near neighbors, to provide reassurance, right? We're doing these things for these reasons, and here's why you shouldn't be concerned. But China's not doing that, first of all. Second of all, we see their activity on the border with India, where they've been quite aggressive, South China Sea, where they've created a facts on the ground, so to speak, of heavily militarized bodies of land where there was no body of land before, bristling with missiles, bases for their ships, even while claiming this area, this huge body of water through which uh, something like 70% of world trade passes, including by far the majority of Australian trade, and basically saying it's ours. So huge military buildup, aggressive actions, China has developed very impressive advances in quantum computing, in anti-satellite technology, in undersea warfare, in drone technology. And the reason is not so much, in my opinion, to prepare for battle with China. It is to deter them from thinking they have an advantage, and therefore they can use that advantage to solidify their gains or to basically scare some of these countries to saying, look, we have the technology to cause you damage. 
your allies and friends, US and Australia, can't do anything about it because they don't have the same technology. So it, it's a very unfortunate situation that we're at, but I'm afraid deterrence is what the goal is. And uh, without deterrence in history is when bad decisions are made, comma, see Ukraine. Okay. Well, it's certainly a, a grim picture that you're painting, or certainly bleak, but uh, let me talk about the technology for just a moment. In your article for the Center for Strategic and International Studies, you talk about when ITAR was initiated, you know, it was obviously around the technological advantage that the US had. But you talk a little bit about the network now, the advantage of networks of allies and sharing and developing technology together. I want to ask, I mean, Australia does not have the research base of the US or the technology base or the industrial base, although we, you know, we've got some game in certain areas. So are we a network of close allies more likely to accelerate technological development or this is simply disbursement of US-made technology? No, I think the idea is all our countries have skills and certain technologies and even individuals who can advance our overall efforts. And don't sell Australia's tech short. You are leaders in quantum. Uh, Michelle Simmons is one of the leaders in quantum computing around. You've done advanced work on cube satellites over the horizon radar, which the U.S. uses now, developed in Australia. Boeing makes an advanced drone in Australia. Lockheed Martin set up the only other skunk works outside the United States in Melbourne. So I don't know if it's in the water there or what, but you guys are doing just fine making technology that the U.S. can use. Why create barriers to closer cooperation, which will allow the development of perhaps better tech? more quickly. Yeah, okay. That is interesting. When you lay those things out, there is some game here. The traction that you've had in the US, I wonder if you can describe, I take it from your article, you've been around the hill and you've dispersed that thinking. What's the reaction you've had from lawmakers there? It's very interesting. I mean, lawmakers are very pro-AUKUS. I mean, part of it is the anti-China sentiment on Capitol Hill. It's one of the few bipartisan issues there is right now. But it's also matched by the pro-Australia attitude. People on the Hill admire Australia for standing up to the economic coercion that China attempted against Australia. That said, Washington moves slowly. The attitude by some members of Congress is, well, we have this licensing system set up under ITAR. Uh, so, you know, why don't you just use it? And, uh, you know, because changing legislation is a big lift you know, two houses of Congress and, and the executive and carve-outs are tough. So it's the sense of urgency that I think is missing. Although I must say there's something called the AUKUS caucus on the Hill. Certain members of Congress are leading the charge. I hope our article helped give them an additional ammunition. And, you know, the heads of mission of the United States to Australia that co-authored it with me represent both parties under a series of presidents. So this is bipartisan as well in that standpoint. Talk to me about Canada, which has got a carve-out that was put forward. Can you talk me through that? And I'm very interested to know, like, our interest is, is, is very parochial, I suppose. We're looking for opportunities for Australian businesses to develop and sell tech. And I would think that changes to ITAR might be something of a double-edged sword for a smaller market like Australia, for local innovators. But talk me through what happened in Canada. You know, I'm not that familiar with what happened with Canada, but my understanding was because 
our economies are so intertwined, especially on things like uh, our defense contractors do work in both places extensively, and things move back and across the border so often. I think as a practical matter, our defense company said, look, we need to do something which makes this easier. And so this has been a while now that Canada got the exemption. And then on this notion of a, a double-edged sword, I mean, I guess it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game with these things, but the lifting ITAR regulations allows a freer flow of tech into this country. Is it a one plus one equals three situation in terms of industrial development that you see? Well, it's an interesting question about who owns the tech, right, if we're working on it together. There is a bilateral agreement on intellectual property and science and technology agreements that sort of lays out who owns what from the contributions each makes. The problem, of course, with these sort of agreements is uh, a lawyer will get involved and, <laughs> and try and argue it. But there is a framework for how tech is shared. Uh, so hopefully that would resolve part of it. That's one. Two, as you saw from the recently released Defense Strategic Review, I think all parties agree that Australia needs to have more capability to produce its own ammunition and other items for warfare in case the worst happens. It also serves the United States purposes, because as we saw from supply chain problems during COVID and afterwards, the more supply chains are robust and redundant, the better it is for all of us. And Australia would certainly be a good location for uh, the U.S. to have as part of our supply chain, as indeed it is for things such as the F-35 and Boeing Dreamliners. I'm going to finish up on this question at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. What's your... Uh Area of interest, I suppose, is ASEAN, the Asia-Pacific, and Australia. What are the sort of big-picture issues beyond the ones that we've just talked about for you right now in 2023? Well, the big-picture issue, of course, is the Indo-Pacific as a whole is what we're interested in jointly, the United States and Australia, to let these countries choose their own path without free of coercion. We don't want them to choose the United States and Australia and China. We want them to make their own sovereign decisions. That's how they've become quite wealthy over the past few years relative to where they were. And in fact, the longest period of peace in the region probably in history. We want to maintain that. So how do we work with our friends in Indonesia and Malaysia and other countries in the Pacific Ocean to bring them into not being so dependent as they are now on China as an export market and source of investment? So that's part of it. That we're looking at. The United States right now is not negotiating market access under free trade agreements, but they're looking at something called the Inter-Pacific Economic Framework to provide financing and standards that help link our economies a little more closely together and transfer money for green energy, for instance, that transition to some of these countries, to transfer technology for these purposes to these other countries. So it's all of a part to keep the Indo-Pacific free, open, and sovereign. James Caruso, Center for Strategic and International Studies, I want to say thank you for coming on today, and we look forward to welcoming you via the internet to the Capability Papers in Adelaide on May the 24th. Thanks, James. Thank you, James, for being with me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And please visit our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our reporting on tech, innovation and public policy. 
You can also follow us on social media to ask us any questions or to suggest a guest for the show. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you a great week ahead.